Hello and welcome to episode two of the fledgling music podcast Sounding Board. We're delighted with the reaction to episode one and thank you for taking the trouble to listen in. Before I start, some key pointers as to where to find us. Firstly, you can listen directly to the pod at soundingboard.podbean.com while taking care to spell board, B-O-R-E-D. We're also at iTunes where you can subscribe and access episode one as well as this one. Typing in sounding board should reveal our whereabouts. On Twitter, you can interact at at soundingboard69. While if you want to feed back in more depth, we have an email account at soundingboard at gmx.com. That's nothing to do with the massive Manchester music venue where the Fall, the Smiths and New Order once shared a stage. But without further ado, welcome to our regular podcast guests, Neil Kennedy and Bear Wallhead. Hello. Fellas, any music news catch your eyes this week? Um, well, I was going to mention um, the new Swans album, or forthcoming Swans album, um, which has been announced it, it will be their last, or at least their last with the current lineup. Um, um, Michael Jira described it as the uh, the musical equivalent of Ben Hur, coupled with <laughs> Kurosawa's Ran, um, and also described it as as being epic, which I don't think was really necessary to be perfectly honest after that. Um, but actually, that's kind of been overshadowed um, because in the last uh, few days. Um, He's been accused of, of rape, I think in 2008, um, by Larkin Grimm, who was a protégé of his on his Young God label. Um, now, he's refuted the claim as a slanderous lie, uh, and a horrible slur, um, and his wife has claimed she has proof in Grimm's own hand that the accusation is false. Um, she's actually um, restated it, she's not retracted it, um, so the truth is, is uncertain, but um, it's certainly threatens to overshadow the album and, and what should be the sort of the swan song for the band. Um, so we'll have to see what happens on that. Yes, and um, from my point of view, uh, I think you, maybe the Brits, did anybody take any notice of it? <laughs> um, I didn't watch, but for me, the fact that Catfish and the Bottle Men were announced as British Breakthrough Act tells you all you need to know. I think I said about the Truck Music Festival lineup in July, which I'm already committed to. I booked tickets before the bands were announced, and I'm generally quite happy with the lineup. The Catfish and the Bottom Men, uh, the timing of their set would provide a good opportunity to go to the nearby North Star pub, which I have to say is a particularly excellent institution. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, fellas, any, any gigs uh, attended in the last month that you want to tell us about? Um, well, uh, the last one that I went to, I went to because I was involved playing <laughs> playing it. Um, but um, the headlining uh, bands at Cape to Oxford were um, a band called Punching Swans, who are from Medway in Kent slash London. Um, sort of excellent, very noisy, clearly kind of influenced by McCluskey, I guess the kind of heavy end of the Pixies and a lot of the American post-hardcore bands like Fugazi and that sort of thing. Um, definitely worth checking out for anyone who's into sort of noisy, loud rock music. Um, so yeah, that would be a recommendation from me. Um, and both me and Neil actually went to see um, a, effectively a showcase that yeah. was part of uh, Independent Venue Week here in Oxford. Um, three local bands on the, on the rise, three local acts on the rise. Uh, Mayans... Um, Cassells and Rosie Caldicott I think um, uniformly excellent I thought yeah. really um, all to look out for um, particularly Mayans I would say they're a sort of 
there's elements of Krautrock and um, techno in there, but there's also a bit of battles and holy fuck, I yeah, think. Um, two drummers. Two drummers, yeah. You can't, can't go <laughs> yeah. on with two drummers. Um, and I also saw, after that, I saw um, Pins uh, supported by, get, get ready for this, uh, Peace and Love Barbershop Muhammad Ali, <laughs> um, who apparently is actually named after a real barbershop. Um, they're both from... Uh, Manchester or maybe I should say Salford I'm not sure quite which I think people who are from Salford get a bit uppity when you say they're from Manchester mm. um, but they were both excellent as well That's good to hear and from my point of view uh, I've been to see Beirut at the Roundhouse in London um, for the second time in six months absolutely excellent show stunning musicianship all round from the band very very impressive and the Ukrainians uh, another kind of East European themed <laughs> band to go alongside Beirut uh, and that was at Bedford Esquires, which I have to say, if anybody lives in the Bedfordshire area, it's a fantastic little venue, really, really impressed with it. They've got about three stages and the main venue is a really nice space. And uh, there's a fantastic pub called the Wellington around the corner. So I think uh, if you're in that vicinity at all, I think it's well worth getting over. And before we finish this little slot, I just wanted to give a plug to, to Neil's band, the Beckoning Fair Ones. Uh, um, we hadn't mentioned it last week we were too polite to mention that he was in a band but uh, really excellent band influenced I guess by a range of bands like McCluskey yeah, LCD yeah, Sound System kinda, a little bit yeah, po- yeah. post-punk both kind of old and new I yeah guess. and there'll be a few gigs no doubt over the next six months in Oxford and perhaps elsewhere that you should definitely get yourself along to checks on the post Right, um, this week we're going to do the first in a, a regular or semi-regular feature on uh, albums or events in musical history after an anniversary. And it's now 25 years, give or take a few weeks, uh, since Primal Scream's Screamadelica was released. Now Primal Scream were an interesting band that I first came across at university uh, as part of the kind of C86 movement, whereas my indie pop uh fan of a of a flatmate was massively into sort of all c86 and and that kind of malarkey at the time and um they produced perhaps the definitive single of the c86 theme uh, scene uh, velocity girl which uh, is one minute and 20 seconds i think of pure pop heaven fantastic track and um since then i was always going to be favorably disposed to them they um then moved on and sort of took a slightly heavier turn for their i think their first proper album sonic flower groove which was a bit grungier uh perhaps searching for an identity in about 1989-90 and i remember seeing that in a few remainder bins including the virgin megastore um just off london's oxford street so at that point i have to say it wasn't looking too good for the primals as they're ubiquitously known in the uh, <laughs> music press um so I didn't think much about them for a couple of years. And in the meantime, you had Happy Mondays and Stone Roses doing all the kind of indie dance crossover stuff. And then about 91, uh, they came in with Loaded, the single, which um, subsequently it was revealed was uh, a kind of you know remix of a track, which was quite a, a reedy um, ballad called I'm Losing More Than I'll Ever Have. And it was just unrecognisable. And it turns out that Andy Weatherall, who was a very, very fashionable producer of, of that time and is still you know, very well respected, had got his hands on it. And Primal Scream had pretty much just let go of the track to the extent that a lot of people wonder whether the track is really Primal Scream's work at all. And that is something I think we'll probably return to. That appeared on the album um, alongside some other, in my opinion, absolutely corking remixes come together which has a kind of Martin Luther King sample on it, which is a terrific sort of version, and a much more spacey, chilled out track in Higher Than The Sun. And these are mixed in with various other 
tracks including a, a cover version of uh, the 13th Floor Elevators and there's Moving On Up, which a lot of people will know as a staple of uh, indie discos. Got an iconic cover, sort of red cover with a kind of splash of blue and yellow paint. Um, very much of its time, that kind of new baggy, new um, psychedelia kind of scene. And of course, like the Primals at the time were known very much for their kind of carousing and for generally being... Uh, Fairly mad for it, for for want of a better phrase. Uh, definitely one of my favourite albums. Absolutely love it. Um, but, you know, I think the interesting thing really I first wanted to introduce was this idea of letting go. And at the time, I think Aphex Twin in particular took this to extraordinary degrees by basically sort of pretending to remix tracks, but actually like laying down something completely different for various bands and like hoodwinking them, and but perhaps conferring on them sort of instant sort of trendiness by sort of, you know, involving himself in, in these remixes. And that's a scene that seems to have sort of disappeared a bit in recent years. I think bands are maybe sort of taking a little bit more control of their own music again as maybe they did before. I don't know if anybody's got any thoughts on this. Yeah. Um, one thing. One thing I remember, just to you know, talk specifically about that kind of remix culture, was uh, this era of the Primals um, and and moving on into Britpop was this kind of time of multiple CD single releases, which would be sort of you know three CDs of the same single, the f- same lead track, <laughs> and then they'd be filling up, you know sort of six other tracks worth of stuff with you know b-sides but then the remix of the lead single or actually just you know a remix of any other song that the band happened to have knocking about would become pretty important i think when you were sort of dealing with all these different formats you know and of course if you had completist fans they'd want to get every single different you know version um so that probably led to a pretty good payday for some you know DJs, uh, whether they were actual DJs or just a mate who are the studio around the corner, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because actually, as recently as about four years ago, Truck Records in Oxford, which is a fantastic store that's near to where this podcast is being recorded and I recommend highly, they had a box set of Screamadelica that they were trying to sell for like, I think, about 150 quid. And wow. um, I'm a fan of the album. Um, which leads me on to to Ben and um, I think one of the criticisms of our first episode was that there was a little bit too much consensus Uh, I think Ben maybe wants to sort of proffer a slightly different opinion of the album Ben well I'm I'm very grateful to you for suggesting that we we discuss Scream Delica because it's it's confirmed really that I I had the view I had before which is that there's only one good Primal Scream album and it's definitely not this one Um, I mean I can see that it could be an important cultural document even though as you say it came after Stone Roses and Happy Mondays Um, but you know, it, it, to me, it feels. I mean, if I was going to be, um, I could I'd probably say it, it sounds like the soundtrack to a party that I wasn't actually invited to. It was. I came after this. I wasn't in, really ever into this sort of thing. Um, and actually, listening back, I've heard people describe the album as timeless. But to me, it sounds very dated. It sounds very much of its time. Very much of its time. Um, I think, yeah. The the kind of confluence of of the indie and the dance elements. There's there's a song in there that I can't remember which one it is, but it sounds it sounds like it's a little house. It's, it sounds like M people to me. It sounds it's absolutely terrible. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, am I am I bitter about the fact that I wasn't invited to the party and I'm kind of looking in through the window and you know sick of everyone telling me how good it is? Um, possibly I don't know. But I, that sort of sense of I can I can understand what the the album's about a lot. A lot of it's about that sort of sense of euphoria. I think 
that comes through the um, all, all the drugginess of it and also the gospel elements. But I think both of those elements would be done much better by spiritualised. So, and I'm a big yeah. spiritualised fan. Yeah. So, I, I didn't get much from that at all. Um, I, I personally, the world would be a much better place if. Bobby Gillespie just stayed drumming for Jesus and Mary Jane. Um, <laughs> well, I would defend Primal Scream, the first single which I mentioned, Velocity Girl, which I have to say, this is, is a trend in music which I I'm, don't have a lot of time for. It's it's bands disavowal of, of early material, which mm. I think, you know, you could call it uh, creeping after like Radiohead's, <laughs> Radiohead's yeah. Creep, which of course they hate playing and I think they virtually never play it now. I haven't done for 25 years, but Velocity Girl... If you don't know it, go and get it. Um, elsewhere in Primal Scream's career, where, where do people feel that the other the other albums, the other um, things stack up? Because I've heard Steve Lamack say that he feels that uh, Primal Scream are at their best when they're not donning leather trousers. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, when they're actually wearing the flowery shirts, the stuff's a bit better. But where do people think? I think people have mentioned Exterminator, haven't they? Exterminator is a clear, clear standard album for me. Yeah, I'd say so as well. I mean, I think there's... Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what wardrobe they had on when they were making (laughs) that particular album. But um, I think it's got... It's, you know, it's powerful. It's really, really ballsy. And there's there with that record, there isn't a sort of an eye cock towards making chart hits or anything like that. It's about making a good... You know, rounded record, which you could say about Screamadelica, there is a kind of through line through yeah. it. Um, but I think in an album like Exterminator, there's more. Co- I'd say the formal experimentation works better on a record like that than I think it maybe comes across at sometimes on Screamadelica. I mean, of course, I think Exterminator <coughs> is itself a, a disavowal of what went before. I mean, the fact that you're opening an album with a track called Kill All Hippies, which is basically Screamadelica is a hippie album. Yes. Um, yes. I think if you want it to be. Yeah. I was, I was sort of maybe being a bit pretentious about this, but they they might argue that you know the, the sort of exterminator is almost like the sort of early seventies Stooges response to the sort of late sixties sort of psychedelia element of Screamadelica, and you know kind of the sort of hippie dream gone sour. Mm. Now, now exterminator to me is a, is a great great album, and that's largely because it's more punk influenced. Yeah. Um, Kevin Shields is on it. That's a large reason I think for it. Um, the, the dance elements are much harder hitting. Swastika yeah. Eyes is a great. The remix that's on the album is a great track, um, and it's kind of it fits into the same sort of ballpark as some of the other stuff that was going on at the time, like um, Death in Vegas and Chemical. But the best the sort of harder side of Chemical Brothers, which I really liked as well. Um, I just yeah, Scream of Delica. I, mean, I, I do actually like Velocity Girl, um, yeah. but Scream of Delica I found hard to, to find anything to like really I think there were tunes on the way there as well I'd say like Vanishing Point you know some of the stuff on that I'm like if they move kill them that sort yeah. of you know was was a clear direction they were moving away from that kind of hippie dim into a harder hitting um, kind of oeuvre whether or not they kind of decided to stay with that harder kind of edge stuff I, I don't think they did I think they kind of have retreated back to an extent into that more sort of stonesy stadium with yeah. the hippie kind of element to it with the later stuff well, Country Girl I think yeah, that's single yeah. particularly but then I, th- I think I mean yeah Evil Heat was like a sort of very much lesser version of Exterminator um, yeah 
And notoriously patchy live, I understand. I've not seen them. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think that's inevitable if they are a band that basically produce albums by committee and they're they're hardly involved in the production of their albums. Mm. They've actually got to learn how to play the songs. Yes. Um, And it also might help by the fact that Bobby Gillespie can't sing. You know, I think that's... (laughs) You can't sing on the albums. Like, you can't sing live. It's just, just, you know, same as Ian Brown, really, for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to say, I should mention at this point the immortal track, The Big Man and the Scream Team Meet the Barmy Army Uptown, which... Which was Scotland's Euro '96 <laughs> theme, and was actually pretty bloody good, I have to say. You know. yeah. um, I should be, I should be predisposed to love everything they do, but I've got to say, it's not the case. <laughs> so, while we mention Primal Scream, I think it should be important to point out, and only fair to the band, they need our publicity, obviously, <laughs> uh, that they have an album out next month, Chaos Mosis, which is a very psychedelic cover, and I'm kind of quite hopeful about that, that it might sort of signal a bit more of a return to the non-Stonesy side of what they do, because that Stones thing, let's put it this way, they have pretty much done it to death. Um, which brings us on to our, our next one of a kind of slightly irregular feature. And we're going to be looking at musical cities, and we're going to look at cities across the world, but probably quite a few UK ones will be central to this. And the first one we're going to look at is Primal Scream's uh, main location of activity, Glasgow. And um, Neil is uh, is going to kind of launch in and tell us a little bit about the Glasgow scene and hopefully will um, lead to some discussion. Yeah, yeah so um, hopefully we'll have a chat about this and we might get to the end and think about Glasgow as being a little bit more than that place where Alan McGee signed Oasis. <laughs> I've got that written down. Yeah, have you? <laughs> um, I thought maybe we could kick off by just maybe thinking about Glasgow bands and talk about favourite Glasgow bands and maybe reasons. I mean, I can I can start with one of my favourite Glasgow bands is um, Life Without Buildings, um, who, if you have listened to, you wouldn't necessarily know that they were a band from Glasgow. The lead singer, the girl who sings in the band, doesn't have a sort of Ouija accent, but um, that's where the band all met at the art school in Glasgow. They're not the only band to have done that. There's plenty of good bands have come out of the art school scene in Glasgow. Um, only released one one album. I think they released a live album afterwards. Um, but it's an album that's gone to have a huge impact, I think, on the kind of post-punk indie music that's been made in the UK from when it was released at the sort of mid-late 90s point onwards. Um, so that'd be my suggestions. I don't know if you guys... I don't know if you heard that album, but it is kind of a bit out of time, isn't it? It was sort of a bit of a sort of pioneering yeah. album now. It's one of those albums that, that is much more celebrated now than it was at the time. I th- definitely. I mean, I remember hearing it on, you know, even on Radio 1, John Peel was certainly playing it a lot, and uh, maybe Mark and Lard, but like... Um, it's it's one which is definitely one of those classic albums which has gone on to become everyone who's listened to it has probably sucked a bit of it into the band they've played and it's had a lot of influence. Yeah, um, it's called Any Other City. If you've never heard of, heard of it, the Life Without Buildings is the band definitely worth checking out. Yeah, not familiar with it personally. I mean, for me, apart from Jim Diamond, it's two O, which would be a natural one in Texas. Uh, I think maybe Camera Obscura, the one I would shout out as being one of my favourites. And also I've got a soft spot um, for the early work of Lloyd Cole and the Commotions because I was 14 at the time and that was one of the few kind of lyrical, literate um, artists in the charts and Rattlesnake still love that as an album. He's not actually Scottish actually, but I think they formed at Glasgow University, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, my favourite, I'd probably have to say it's, it's Mogwai or Jesus and Mary Chain probably. Um, 
But I was going to say, I've been, uh, I'm currently researching for a, a book chapter on, on Malcolm Middleton at the minute. So I've been listening to a lot of Arab Strap. Um, and I'd, I'd like to give a plug to them, really. Mm. I mean, the the first album, I think, um, The Week uh, Never Starts Round Here, is, is quite patchy, I think, um, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but it's got it's got some some moments that sort of point to where they were going. And the following album, uh, Philophobia, and the fourth album, The Red Thread, are both yeah, excellent. Um, I mean, if you've not heard them, they are quite a, quite a proposition. They're a, effectively a, a drunk, sex obsessed <laughs> man, uh, sort of making very creepy confessions <laughs> over um, often quite epic sounding music. Um, quite lo-fi as well. Lo-fi. Well, yeah. the first album certainly. Yeah. I think. They got more. I mean, I think uh, it's quite lush on the Red Thread, for instance. Um, they're not dissimilar in, in sort of dynamic to, to Sleaford mods. Actually, the way Mark and Middleton provides the backdrop and lets yeah. um, Ada Moffat get on with it. Um, and there's, <laughs> there's some, the, lyric, the lyrics are quite <laughs> extraordinary, generally speaking. Um, if I had to pick a particular song, um, I've only recently discovered um, "Deeper," which is the fat last track on um, the week's uh, "Never Starts Around Here," which is his tale of walking home from a friend's house with uh, his older sister, his friend's older sister. Um, and you can might imagine where that goes. Um, and New Birds from Philophobia, which is also an exceptional Amazing. song. Um, so yeah, I, I've really, really been enjoying them lately. Yeah, good stuff. Probably worth pointing out that we do know that Jesus and Mary Chain were from East Kilbride originally, <laughs> and Arab Strap from Falkirk. But um, it gives a sense of the of Glasgow as a city that it's pulled in these people from the towns around and you know I mean most famous song on uh, Week Never Starts Around Here uh, First Big Weekend Friday Night We're Going Down to the Arches you know it shows that Glasgow is pretty central to um, a lot of those bands and the scenes that kind of nurtured them um one of the scenes that really grew out of Glasgow, um, and I guess we've touched on this genre to a small extent with Camera Obscura and also with the kind of early Primal Scream is the indie pop scene. Um, bands like Early Primal Scream, The Pastels as well, for me in Glasgow, and all of this kind of morphing up. I suppose possibly as a response to the sheeny pop of some bands that came out of Glasgow, like Your Simple Minds, Wet, Wet, Wets, I suppose Midjura being a transplant into Ultravox, um, resulted in needing some sort of alternative to that, and that's how the kind of indie pop, bedroom, you know, um, rock music um, kind of came out of. Um, it went through the kind of homespun um, powerhouse that was Postcard Records, an indie label that only released 13 singles, but they were by some of the most influential um, kind of indie bands of the 80s, specifically Orange Juice, Joseph K as well, Go Betweens released stuff on them. Um, and that's kind of led up through the 80s um, to into the 90s, where the formation of Bell and Sebastian and the amazing success of that band from being an, an indie band that recorded their first album when they were all on a kind of benefit um, programme funded by the Scottish kind of government, which meant they could go into um, Stowe College and record um, their debut album for a little local label that was picked up, became nas- a national success, resulted in other indie albums, and they're now a band that tore the world. And have kind of, you could almost say, have united a lot of kind of indie fans certainly indie pop fans globally um there's certainly always a, a you know they're signed 
two uh, they're on rough trade now I think, or, or Matador I think they're on now but they have had a massive kind of impact on that's what was quite a small niche genre of music um, becoming the real kind of global force. I don't know if you guys have got any perspectives um, on maybe on Bill Sebastian. Well, or, I agree. Um, I mean, their success. I, I think that the thing that really has struck me about Bell and Sebastian, I mean, initially I, they, I slightly resented them because I kind of felt they'd really were doing the same as a lot of bands in the mid 80s in the C86 um, scene who just never achieved that kind of fame. But really, they have transcended that because they've had several absolutely stunning records. And I think it is that overseas, particularly in America, that they've yeah. really become successful, particularly on the kind of college circuit. And yeah. there's such a kind of, you know, winsome kind of feel-good sort of pleasantness about, like, the band and about Stuart Murdoch. I mean, he's like, you know, I, I think, you know, I think fame, is, he, fame sits well with him, really, I think, you know. Yeah. And, I, and I think they, they're... Fully deserving, and I've seen them live a few times, and they've been fantastic every time. Yeah. You know, really good. Yeah. Ben, yeah. possibly. I, I, I will. I will not talk about Ben Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> I will bring the mood down. Um, yeah, yeah. No, let, let's not go there. Um, Chemical well, Underground. You can correct me on this, but Chemical Underground. They are that is Glasgow based. Well, yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, I, that's who I'd like to mention because they are the label that Mogwai um, are on. They're the label Arab Strap um, uh, were on to start with. Yes. They left for their third album. Um, to go to go to Go Beach, uh, that didn't work out at all. They came back, welcome back with open arms. Um, it should be mentioned that they're the label set up by the Delgados, yeah. who it was to, to actually to, to release their first single. Delgados are a tremendously underrated band, I think. Agreed. Um, yeah. I think it was their third album was Mercury nominated, um, yeah. The Great Eastern. But for me, Hate, uh, the album after that is, is tremendous, really tremendous. Um, so that, again, it, I think... A lot of um, the scene of a city is, is, yeah, it's good, good labels, but also like venues. I guess we were going to definitely. Talk to well, I mean, I think that one of the reasons why Glasgow's probably been able to sustain its, rep- its representation as a sort of global music city, and don't take my word for it. I discovered when I was researching about this, it's a UNESCO city of music, yeah. um, along with other musical powerhouses such as Seville. Bologna and Ghent right. so no me neither uh, you know but if anyone else will, if anyone wants to write in to tell us what the highlights of uh, those particular musical cities are I'd be delighted to well, hear about it. Is the Barber of Seville the opera of course <laughs> uh, yes uh, apart from that yeah. yeah you're starting to struggle after that but yeah those venues and having kind of independent venues that haven't been co-opted I suppose by corporations or had big takeovers by breweries or drinks companies or whatever has kind of been able to help sustain a a local um, music scene um, that grows up around the kind of very strong art school and the universities that are in in Glasgow. Um, The ones that, you know, I always think of from when I was going down to Glasgow and I was living up in the north of Scotland where obviously we mentioned King Tut's, there's also Nice and Sleazy's on Socky Hall Street, there's uh, the 13th Note which is sort of down near Strathclyde Uni, um, Glasgow Art School itself puts on lots and lots of great gigs and also gets across from America some really interesting experimental bands. Um, and there's also be, always been a kind of strong art scene as well in the city, um, which has kind of gone hand in hand with bands coming over and being able to, quite, to play quite experimental music in gallery spaces as well. Um, I was also going to mention... And I've got to be honest, it's not absolutely my natural territory, but how strong the dance scene has been in Glasgow. Um, I think it's uh, it's definitely been an element of um, what's made the city 
very strong. I mean, it's famously got a, rep, you know, a reputation as a place that people like to, you know, go out and have a good night. But I think the dance music infrastructure and scene in the city has kind of led to a lot of that reputation. Um, we talked about the arches now sadly closed, but that was responsible for many years as, of being a you know a real kind of hub of great club nights. Um, a lot of it came around um, Subcity Radio, which was Glasgow University's um, independent radio station that students got involved in, and they had guest mixes. One of those people doing guest mixes um, in the noughties was um, Hudson Mohawk, who would go on to be, well, it's now signed to Warp Records and is Kanye West's go-to producer. Um, so, and I guess it's it's hard to sort of take one particular artist who's gone on to sort of international success and he happens to be from that city. But I think when you dig a little bit deeper and you can see the infrastructure that's been there for dance in the city, you can see how it would lead to one particularly visionary kind of music producer getting huge international success. Mm. I was going to ask you about, um, with the honourable exception of Young Fathers and one or two other bands, Edinburgh, musical heritage is generally I think it's fair to say less impressive I'm sure there's a lot of bands that I've not heard of that are excellent but from the outside looking in is there a reason why Edinburgh is perhaps punched below the weight of Glasgow in the pecking order yeah well this is getting into probably the (laughs) the biggest debate in Scotland you know which city's better Edinburgh (laughs) Glasgow Um, but um, I mean I suppose I mean one one big band you could say that are kind of not from Edinburgh uh, would be the Proclaimers. They're from Octor Mockety, but of course they uh, tied their kind of colours to the mask by being big Hibs fans and writing Sunshine on Leith, which, mm. uh, you know, is probably one of the best known albums by any kind of Scottish band. Mm. Um, and it's very much rooted in Edinburgh. I think, um, as I said, there maybe has there maybe isn't the, the independent venue, the consistent independent venue kind of structure. Maybe not the kind, there's certainly a dance music scene and club nights there, but maybe not quite as strong. There's possibly also an argument to say, oh, it's a bit more high art in Edinburgh where a lot of the money gets funded into through the festival and things mm. like that, um, putting on more classical music, more kind of um, dance in an interpretive sense or ballet or things like that. Um, but there's still been many good bands that have come out of the city, you know, down the years. Um, yeah, I won't go through a list now, but, you know, it's, it's certainly got that mm. to it. So uh, yes, to my um, to my shame, I've never actually been to Glasgow. Um, but all those venues that you mentioned, I have actually heard of. Um, I think they've they've got quite a sort of national renown, if not international renown, um, through bands like Mogwai, etc. Um, whereas Edinburgh, which I've been to many a time, I, c- I couldn't honestly name you a gig <laughs> venue. I don't think. Um, so that, that's sort of a marker of, of Edinburgh's, of, well, sorry, Glasgow's musical stature, really. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, that was a great discussion of Glasgow and its musical heritage. And uh, now we're going to come on to our album of the month. Now, last month's episode, uh, we talked about Savage's album, Adore Life, which I think was generally well received by the panel. Um, Here we're going for more of a veteran band, a band from the northeast of England, Field Music. And Ben is going to start off the discussion about their new album, Common Time. Uh, yeah, well, um, we've just been talking about um, musical cities on your, on your feature, talking about Glasgow. Um, I think it's, it's fair to say that my hometown of Newcastle is unlikely ever to feature, um, given its, its musical output. Um, I've made a list here of some of the highlights. Uh, Dire Straits, Lindisfarne, <laughs> Lighthouse Family, Jimmy Nail, PJ and Duncan, Sting. Um, 
So I was, I was sort of slightly disgusted to discover in the sort of early to mid noughties a wellspring of talent in Sunderland of all places. Um, it started with the Future Heads, um, but sort of along with them came field music as well. Um, now, field music are formed around a core of two brothers, uh, Peter and David Brewis. Um, Peter actually used to drum for the Future Heads in the early days. Um, and members of both of them and Maximo Park have actually played in um, field music. Um, if you had to characterise them, you'd probably say they're broadly quite gentle, melodic, sort of post-punk, vaguely. Um, a bit of new wave element. They're quite clean cut. They've got a very sort of English element to them. Um, I'd guess they've been under many people's radar, um, although the fourth album, Plum, got a, a Mercury nomination. Um, sort of, I would say they've been quietly carving out a career for themselves, but not really interested in fashions and trends. Um, and Common Time is their, their sixth album. Uh, I think all of them have been for Memphis Industries. Um, so just to start off with, uh, does anyone have any, any thoughts of the general thoughts of the album? I did enjoy it. I think... I've, well, I've I've kind of been with field music for quite a long time. To go back to what you were saying about the bands coming out of the Sunderland scene, um, I w- was a really big fan of a band that kind of came out of that scene and were kind of under the radar, um, even more under the radar than field music, a band called The St. Vegas, who released a couple of albums um, on um, Jealous Records uh, indie label. And um, we're really kind of strongly influenced by, sonically anyway, by the kind of American kind of post-hardcore-y scene. And I think there's an aspect, there's certainly a lineage of that kind of quite twisty-turny, complex music. Um, Think about bands like kind of mathy rock bands like Farrakhet and stuff that you can sort of feel that there's a slight element of that in f- what field music do but obviously they've had the time across a what five album career to establish and grow that and, and bring in all sorts of other influences beyond just the kind of you know angular punky stuff you know that maybe the future heads were best known for um i think with this album to me it felt quite front-loaded the- i was about to say exactly the same yeah. thing actually yeah i think the first the first two tracks are tremendous, and I think it's still good for a few tracks yeah. after that. But it 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 does tail off a bit, I think, towards you know towards end. It's, it feels like it starts to feel like quite a long album. Actually, well, yeah. Well, one of the funny things I thought because their the third was it their third album anyway, Measure, which third, was yeah. the du- the double album. Yeah. And I actually I I really enjoyed that record, and I felt that Measure actually didn't feel as long as. Um, common time, despite being sort of six tracks longer than yeah. it, which is just—I I don't know—I don't know what it is about this record, but I think maybe it is the the track listing. I think the pace slows a bit. The song pace, generally. I, I was going to say as well. I think if if I had a criticism of them generally over the course of their careers, that they they don't really seem to know how to structure an album. I wouldn't say. I mm. think there's there's no the albums don't seem to finish on a song that is an obvious end point to an album I don't think any of them do really yeah. um, and certainly this album feels like all of the best stuff is loaded towards the front um, which meant that I kind of started to lose interest towards the end and I am a big fan of the band um, so yeah I think the first kind of disc or LP of uh, Measure has a, a great tune on it called this uh, called You and I uh, which is a really beautiful song works really well as an album closer but of course it's not the album closer because yeah. then there's ten other songs coming on the second yeah. CD. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean that's that, those kind of my main thoughts. I think um, with that with the record. Yeah, I mean I agree with you that the the first two tracks, the noisy days are over and disappointed, really stand out. The noisy days are over has got this incredible kind of saxophone solo that yeah. you know would be considered to be out of the top, out, over the top in most contexts, but actually works really well. And the percussion is brilliant. I mean the instrumentation all the way through is as inventive as you'd come to expect from such a creative band. Um, I think they would have fitted in quite well in the sort of northeast scene in the late 80s which revolved around kitchenware records um i think sort of prefab sprout are definitely you know a, a band that you know they follow in the lineage thereof um we've had some feedback actually on the pod um john mcgee um Epouvantai on twitter which means scarecrow for anybody who's not that up with their french um he says he rates common time amongst the band's best um and he says if pushed i think my very favorite record in their firmament is the week that was Mm. Then possibly this or Tones of Town. Yeah. Now I would say Tones of Town would be my favourite. That's the first one. I think it's quite a, quite a sort of short album. Yeah. You know, good introduction, yeah, very yeah. lyrical. He also dared us not to mention Hall and Oates, which given <laughs> get, get, given in a, a quietus interview um, that was recently ran that the band talked about Hall and Oates at great length. Uh, it is impossible. And there you go. We we have failed the bet. That's why um, I think they're quite I interesting. See. The fact that there is that there is definitely that post punk post-hardcore yeah. to them but they're also referencing you know classic and, 80s sort well, of pop effect yeah, Prince is Prince, obviously yeah. a mass I mean they've they've avowed that they're huge sort of Prince fans I think um, well, and, and him and him of and them. He, exactly yeah. and he, he seems to like them too which is fantastic um, I one of the things just being a kind of fan of the bands from this scene from this um, area they they were involved in the album um, by the band Slug, which I think was kind of a solo record for one of their uh, one of their mates, but which was recorded by them and which they ended up playing in the live band of. And I think you can hear the influence of playing in a band where they could kind of cut loose a bit more and uh, get more kind of different instrumentation on board it's definitely fed into this one um i'm glad you reminded me of that because actually that was from last year yes, wasn't it? Yeah. and I, I think it's superior to this film music album, really? okay, that'd be my view i, re- I really yeah. enjoyed the album yeah. Yeah. just to um, sort of connect things up as well with the last podcast we were talking about david bowie and you were saying that your neil your, your favorite bowie moment is that beginning of fame now yeah. i think there's a lot of the sort of fashion. funky <laughs> sorry fashion there's a lot of the funk element of Bowie in this album as well yeah, I think definitely um, mm, yeah. Mm. I mean yeah disappointed um, don't you want to know what's wrong as well yeah. that song particularly um, but also I thought but not for you which I think is, the, is it the third track but not for you um, yeah. yeah that one actually to me sounds it's got the sort of the synth and the bass and the falsetto to me it sounds quite a lot like Metronomy so that suggests yeah. that they've got Metronomy a band who have kind of crossed over effects they have definitely got that potential this album feels more like it's got more crossover potential than previous albums I think Certainly the early songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just, I wonder about the, the the kind of the length of it. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that the songs that tend to connect so much are those ones right at the start of the album. Yeah. Um, and I guess given attention spans and things like that, yeah. you know, you've got, I suppose people are going to be really invested. And I think they're the kind of bands um, that people can get really invested in, you know. Um, and they will have kind of fans that are really kind of, you know, they're keen to like stick with them, you know, and always interested to check out what they do. But um, yeah, I mean, I think just like if you're putting on your casual listener hat, 
it will start to trail off a wee bit towards the end. In terms of, sort of attention and on the issue of time, I was asking you particularly, <laughs> Neil, actually, they, one of the things they said in the Quietus interview was um, they've both recently become fathers, mm. and I think they look after the kids full time. Um, <laughs> so they did actually say, our time in the studio is so fine out now, we used to be able to mess around for ages, drink cups of coffee and try things between popping to the shops. Now it's about getting in and really having fun for three hours. So as someone who actually plays in the band, do you find <laughs> having those constraints actually a help or a hindrance? It seems like they find it a help. Mm, I think you're talking to the wrong person, because unfortunately <laughs> I've only ever played in bands that always have an incredibly finite amount of studio time because we couldn't afford anything longer right. than like the bare minimum. I think, I mean, I suppose, like, field music, I suppose, are in a quite kind of enviable and unusual position of having their own studio that they can do stuff in. I mean, I think the days of, you know, someone hiring a chateau in France and bringing out a producer and all the gear and like, oh yeah, let's experiment with the drum sound are quite rare these days, given, you know, the way the kind of state of the music industry um, is. I think great things can come out of that kind of experimentation, but actually being really focused on writing good songs isn't something which necessarily is kind of limited to the studio or yeah. to like trying out ideas with different faders or reverbs or something like that. Um, and just a quick last sort of final question for Rob on this. Um, in the same interview, they said uh, the other thing we're still asking people with this record is to question the idea of what is cool. Um, so, do you, would you say the album is cool? And does that matter? Does it relate to contemporary trends? And um, might actually being uncool if it is uncool might that be to their advantage? I mean, this is such a difficult question. I mean, you know, it's all bound up with the whole idea of irony and post-irony and, and you know, what's cool and what isn't. And, uh, you know, I think they are cool, but, you know, they're pretty credible. I think they've retained their credibility all the way through. I mean, another band who I really like, who are quite similar to film music, are Dutch Uncles, another kind of lyrical yeah. band here from Manchester that are kind of latter come lately band but you know very very kind of influenced by the 80s but the 80s for me I, I'm still a little bit scarred by it really like the, <laughs> I mean I love the Smiths and my Billy Bragg and the rest of it but the mainstream stuff unfortunately for me all that stuff was bound up with like politics and and generally you know money and big hair and all the rest of it and I I, I find I find the mainstream from the eighties and Hall and Oates. I mean I don't think you're ever going to get me on the Hall and Oates bandwagon. No, that 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 reference different definitely sort of put me off. So I was kind of pleasantly surprised listening to the album, I have to say, but that, that did that did turn me off a bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's that kind of production because those people in the hands of kind of LA producers and it was very, very kind of overproduced, whereas I don't think film music have done that. I mean, they're no. much more homespun. So although there are similarities, you know, they're not quite in that kind of Steely Dan kind of level of, of kind of production, are they? I don't no. think. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay, well, that was a great discussion of uh, film music's new album, Common Time. Uh, we'll be back in a month's time. Uh, there or thereabouts uh, and this is our second episode uh, just a reminder about some of the coordinates uh, we're first and foremost on iTunes and you just search for us on iTunes now at Sounding Board and um, you can subscribe so that means that all you have to do is subscribe and then you've got every episode of the of the podcast landing in your uh, iTunes each month uh, we're also if you just want to listen online or on your iPad Sounding Board .podbean.com uh, we have the email address which I'll repeat which is soundingboard at gmx.com or gmx.com and we're Rob Langham Neil Kennedy and Ben Woolhead and uh, thank you very much for listening <laughs> <laughs>